0: Creating your own reality. Is it possible for me? I am Jennifer Cahill, the Consciousness Architect, and I am here to tell you that it's not only possible, it's closer than you might think. Welcome to the show. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being here for another episode of Regarding Consciousness. Today's topic definitely pulls at my heartstrings as we are joined today by the prior CEO of Bonobos. Andy Dunn co founded Bonobos in 2007 and took it all the way through to its acquisition by Walmart in 2017. After having had an incredible success with that acquisition, Andy went on most recently to write a book called Burn Rate, chronicling his experience with bipolar disorder and all the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur during those 10 years. In addition to that, he went to Stanford Business School and has now just recently completed his first TED Talk, which, if I'm not mistaken, is already over at a half a million views. Is that right, Andy?
1: It, I think so.
0: <laughs> he says very humbly. "I think," And that's pretty good. I think I looked at it right after it came out. It was at 30,000, then it jumped to a half a million in a few days. So mazel tov. Thank you. Yeah. So, Andy, as I was sharing this with you before, obviously sometimes the juiciest conversations we have happen before we even get started. I should always just hit yeah. record right away. Sure. Hearing part of the reason I reached out to you is my own personal journey with depression, and then my sister's yeah. journey with bipolar schizophrenia. Tell for those of our viewers out there who might not be familiar with bipolar disorder or mental health mental health, let's just say obstacles that we might go through. Can you just share with us a little bit about what is bipolar disorder and what was it like for you when you discovered that you were diagnosed bipolar?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So bipolar disorder is really just a disorder of mood. It can sound like something hard to grasp or understand. It really is on the high side, your mood running away into a state called hypomania, which is increased excitability energy, grandiosity, some elements of delusional self-belief. If someone in a hypomanic state can be irresistibly persuasive, work a lot, hypomania, it's hard to it's hard to realize that someone is maybe going out of bounds on the high side. And then beyond that is we have mania. And so the colloquial term for bipolar 1 anyway is manic depressive illness. And mania is more like actual an actual psychotic break where you leave the world that everyone else is occupying and you move into your own world. And that that often or frequently is coincides with a messianic delusion. Hmm. And so when I was 20, basically I thought it was Jesus 2.0, it was the turn of the millennium. I thought I was here to save the world. And that manic episode became a real threat to myself and others. I was not eating, I was not sleeping. I was ranting and raving. I was lecturing my dad in my underwear about how white men had ruined the world, uh, fully off the rails. And that's the high side. And then depression, I think we we have a better grasp of, which is a low mood state. Maybe it's not being able to get out of bed. Maybe it's not wanting to live. And with bipolar one, manic depressive illness, globally, the suicide attempt rate is sixty percent, and the suicide rate is nineteen percent. So this is not low grade depression. This is catastrophically bad depression. And the evidence of that is in the suicide rate, which is just unacceptably high. My journey has been about being diagnosed with that when I was 20, being in denial of it for 16 years, and then coming to grips with it and figuring out how to get healthy.
0: So what would you say, Andy, if somebody, it's funny, you made a joke about it, but it's funny, not funny. It's not funny. Ha It's funny. That's the idea that I think you said of the population has bipolar disorder. And of all entrepreneurs, I think you said it was 11% of all entrepreneurs have bipolar. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So this is a study from the University of California, San Francisco, where Dr. Michael Freeman has looked at the correlation between neurodiversity and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And what he has found is if we look at bipolar, which might be 1% to 3% of the general population, 11% of entrepreneurs, so we're looking at 3 to 10 times as high of a rate for bipolar. That holds up that kind of over-indexing across ADHD, depression, substance use, multiple stripes in adversity. And the hypothesis is that will continue to be true as we go deeper and look at the autism spectrum, OCD, anxiety, panic suicide, NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, which I joke and I shouldn't, might be 100% of entrepreneurs. It's just clear that neurodiversity and creative stuff, creative human behavior go hand in hand. And and so it's a passion of mine to figure out how do we unlock, how do we unwrap the gift that neurodiversity can be uh, without being subsumed by the costliness of it.
0: I deeply resonate with that. As I was mentioning to you offline, I was saying I'm going to Croatia in a week and I'm actually giving a talk there on how having Asperger's, which I didn't find out until late in my thirties, I just thought I was an alien. (laughs) I was just like, I just thought I didn't fit in with anybody. And so I uh, was diagnosed in my late thirties and it's completely changed my life. Just understanding that I'm not some horrific person who can't get it right. I was always making faux pas, making mistakes, even running my first company. People would accuse me of being cold or resting robot face. We'll call it robot face to keep it on the (laughs) PC side of things. But it took me years. And that's actually how I came to do what I do now, which is studying and analyzing people because I used to make so many mistakes. And so I was just talking with my business partner the other day about empathy and how some forms of neurodiversity can struggle with empathy because they don't feel emotions or sense other people's feelings as much. And he told me something really brilliant, which was that for a lot of us, whether we're neurodiverse or not, sometimes sympathy is a better track to take than empathy. Because if we both are being empathetic, if you're having a really emotional experience, and I dive right in there with you, then you have two drowning people Versus if one person is really going through a hardship and another person is able to be sympathetic, but still stay balanced in that. I thought that was a cool pivot and way to look at something that otherwise might be frowned upon.
1: hundred percent. And I want to ask, I want to have a whole dialogue with GPT-4 about empathy versus sympathy because I still sometimes struggle with it. Asperger's is a it's such a superpower potentially because the ability to focus and to become an expert on something and you raise empathy I just Elon has disclosed he's on the autism spectrum somewhere and you look at buying Twitter and then laying off 3700 people within a week and on the one hand it's how could someone do that and on the other hand it's if you don't if you're not subsumed by or consumed by empathy for other people it, that actually can sometimes mean you can make a crisper decision. Mm. That might be the right thing for the for an enterprise. And anyway, we don't have to get into whether a layoff is humane or inhumane. It's inhumane for those people that leave, but it's humane for those that stay so that the business might endure. And I guess departing from current entrepreneurs, when I was working on my TED Talk, I was trying to think about a historical innovation that, that was mind-blowing at the time that we take for granted now. And I ended up looking at air travel. Mm. And the traditional idea of how air travel was invented was that it was these guys in North Carolina, the Wright brothers. My wife's Brazilian. Having spent time in Brazil, everyone in Brazil, there's a there's an airport in Rio called the Alberto Santos Dumont Airport. And everyone in Brazil is like this is actually the guy that invented flight, but no one gives us credit for it. And if you look at it, it's not so clear. They were both, the Wright brothers and Alberto Santos Dumont were working on flight at the same time. Alberto Santos Dumont had these more like dirigible type things, but he was flying in them before the Wright brothers were. And then there's some messiness around like no one knows exactly when they were doing what. So I thought, let me just spend some time researching like the potential neurodiversity of these three men. (laughs) I love it. And of course, it was known in the day that the Wright brothers in theory, both had autism. And that led to a different way of approaching flight, which is they didn't want everyone to know about it. They wanted to do it, figure it out. They didn't want the attention. They wanted to build a great business behind it and make it a lucrative venture. And so the data on exactly when what was happening was more hidden because they were experimenting in private. Alberto Santos Dumont, we think, had bipolar disorder. And he actually tragically died by suicide. And he was the consummate showman, which resonates with me. He was, he wanted to show off every single flight was the theatrical thing. And I thought, this is so funny. I'm researching for this TED talk. I happen to think about flight. And of course, there's like these stories of neurodiversity right there. And it's everywhere you look. The more time you spend looking for for this correlation, whether there's causation or not, the correlation is absolutely there.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's astounding. So talk to us about what was the challenge for you. So here you are, you're running Bonobos. And I think this was towards the end of your time there, because I think your big break that you talk about in both the TED Talk and in Burn Rate was around 2016. And then you sold the company about a year later. What happens when you actually had that break? What's the challenge you faced? You still have a company to run the next day or once you get out of the hospital. How did you handle that?
1: It was hard. It was hard. I spent a week at Hospital in New York. I was brought there by the police. They have a psychiatric emergency room there, which is a wonderful facility, actually. It's a scary place to be in retrospect. I wasn't processing it at the time. And then once you're well enough to leave the psychiatric ER, move to a ward. So I spent about three days, I think, in the psychiatric ER, and then four days in a psychiatric ward. And by the time I got to the ward, I'd had enough medication, and I'd gotten enough sleep, and had been brought back from this psychotic messianic delusion part two, the previous one 16 years earlier. And I was finally ready to deal with this illness. I was 36. I had hundreds of employees. I had a woman I was dating who I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. It was a different time. It was 2016 versus 2000. My family had all rallied around me, and I was ready to do it. I was ready to take medication. I was ready to be in treatment. And I walked out after a week of the psych ward and walked straight into handcuffs. And I was arrested for felony and misdemeanor assault from an episode, from violence during the manic episode, which I was not really, I knew as I pieced it together, but I my brain couldn't like process the memory. And maybe that's the nature of a traumatic memory. I still can only remember my now wife, then girlfriend, like walking towards me and thinking she was like an alien from the movie Ex Machina. Being like she's coming to, when in fact she was terrified and was coming to try to help me from running naked into the streets of Greenwich Village. It was a horrible time. There was like going through the legal system and was this domestic violence or was this a mental health episode? There Was I going to lose this woman that I love? Was she going to be able to endure what I was going through? Were we going to be able to rebuild? Was I going to have to step down from my job? Was there going to be PR about it? It felt like everything was falling apart. And the because it was. And then the backdrop to that was I went into the most devastating depressive episode I've ever been in, which is all too common, where you have this like really high and then you get rocked back down to earth. But it's not like you return to a stable mood state. It's almost like a credit card debt where like you've run up a million dollar credit card bill from the mania on it from a mood standpoint. And now you have to pay it down with depression. And as you may know from some things you've alluded to, and it's hard to get the medications right. And when it comes to manic depressive illness, it's hard to give someone with bipolar antidepressant because they may slingshot back up into mania. So you can't even take a freaking antidepressant. Now sometimes I meet someone with depression and they're like struggling with whether whether or not to take medication. And I'm like, you idiot, just take it. At least you can, like. I would have killed at times to to be able to take it. And so it was hard. It was a hard six months and thank God got through it.
0: It it is really remarkable when you think of it on the other end of that, Andy. Here you sell to one of the biggest companies in the world, one of the biggest commerce companies, Walmart. And was it worth it?
1: Was it worth it? Meaning the...
0: The pain, the anguish. Would you go back if you could do it all over again? Was everything... You know how people, you always hear these cliche stories. I'd do it all over again, yeah, the question is, had you if you could go back and hit rewind and go back to that first time when you were twenty years old and you thought you were the first coming of Jesus or the second coming, whatever it was, yeah, would you do it all over again the same way, or would you take an eraser to parts of that?
1: yeah, it's a really it's an interesting frame that you put on around it where it is a bit cliche to say I would do it again. I guess I'd be curious to know what would my life have looked like. I had ex- been able to accept the illness at that time and gotten in treatment then. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that would require suspend- suspending disbelief on a bunch of things, including even like what medications were available. But no, like I'm not ready to say that this was better the way that it played out because it could have gone so wrong. There were episodes of depression so bad where I didn't want to go on living and we all know how that can end with suicide rates and. For bipolar one, the data shows that the suicide attempt rate is 60%. The suicide rate is 19%. So, Who wants to roll the dice with unmedicated bipolar on the low end? And on the high end, as we've talked about, anything can happen. Once you're psychotic, you can harm yourself. You can harm other people. You can lose it all. You can spend all your money. It's terrible. So it's more like... The survivorship bias story of seems maybe that I got to the other side of it. And so it would be cliche to say, yeah, let's do this all over again. (laughs) But the truth is, I have the luxury of saying that because of a lot of the good fortune or whatever you want to call it, the privilege to get through this ability to afford great care, supportive, loving, understanding family and now wife, medication that worked for me. I am a lucky case. So yeah, I could be like, yeah, I do it all over again. What I'd really like to do is try to not do it all over again <laughs> and be medicated and be well. Perfect. Maybe my life. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Maybe I don't know. I'm not I don't feel like I'm I want something about my life to be different right now. But I can't say that it wouldn't be just as good or better. I don't know how to define it. That would be what would be fun. let's run let's run the play where I had my shit together where I was taking care of myself. There would be no book. We wouldn't be talking to each other, which would be a bummer.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it's so funny. I love the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. Did you see that movie? I did, yeah. And it's so great because it's like there are variations of us in all these different places. And I, and like yeah. you, I struggle with it. It's funny, not funny. But for me, I mean, I tried to commit suicide three times between the age of 16 and 21 Two very close to being successful. And the funny, not funny part is the only thing, Andy, that stopped me after that when I got depressed later in life. And God bless my dear friend, Mark Golston, who I was just mentioning to you offline, who's been a guest on the show he got me through one of the darkest places. And the other thing that stopped me, to your point, I would never want to go through all this again, right? I study many spiritual disciplines. And like you, I actually converted to Judaism because of my husband. And I've studied Kabbalah mm. now for about a decade. And the Kabbalists mm. say that if you commit suicide, you have to come back and do everything all over again. And it's harder. And that is literally the only thing that wow. stopped me later in life from doing it. There, were, there was a time that was so crushing. I was going through a divorce. I had just been diagnosed with Asperger's. I just Mm. sold my company. Everything was changing. And I felt this Mm. soul crushing loneliness that I didn't think I was going to survive. And if it wasn't for my dear friend, Mark, and my other friends at the time who supported me, I just remember Mm. on my knees one time fighting with God and be like, God, I can't do this. It's over. And the only thing that stopped me in that moment was that thought of, I can't do this all over again.
1: Wow. When was that?
0: That was 2018. I asked my ex-husband yeah. for a divorce in October of 2018 and gave it all up. It's like, you think you have the perfect idyllic life. You've built a company, you've now sold a company. You have a husband and three homes and a car and a dog and all the accoutrements. And yet my soul was just yearning for something different. And yeah, here I am now, five years later, working in a totally different industry. But at the time, I didn't think I was going to survive it. Glad you're here. Yeah, me too. I'm glad you're here too. I mean, that. so what's the advice, Andy? We're here and the purpose of the show, the only reason I do this show is to be of service, to add value. If one person out there is watching, listening, and that we can add value. If somebody is struggling with mental health, maybe they're an entrepreneur, maybe they don't know if they're neurodiverse, what is your advice to them? How can they support themselves or how can they get the support they need?
1: Yeah, I think that while we're trading or trafficking in cliches, I think there's an element of, yeah, get help, be in treatment, mental health professionals. Then there's the challenges with it and the, who's the right person. And I know you're working on that with your new in your new venture, which is amazing. And there's also challenges of reimbursement. I, I actually have to focus my answer to this question on what is more top of funnel from that, to use nerdy business term, or let's just say like more colloquially, like what do we need to do before? we are able to go out and get help and figure out what kind of help to get. And I think that is about the story we tell ourselves in our own minds about how a mental health challenge impacts our identity. And I know, and so it's like an identity conversation of, I don't want to identify as someone who Mm. has a mental health challenge or problem. I definitely don't want to identify as someone who's mentally ill I don't want to be in this bucket of people that I've heard about, but that wasn't me. And now that's me. I don't want to be in there. And with, with just like bipolar to give you this personal example, bipolar in particular, I noticed that people would start to say, Oh, you, you have bipolar or you are bipolar. Or I would hear other people say not about me, but about other people. They wouldn't even know that I'd been through this experience that I'd gotten this diagnosis They'd be like, "Oh, she's bipolar." Mm-hmm. In kind of a way, and it's like they don't know that's me, so it makes me want to hide it. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time to unpack the idea that no, I'm not bipolar. I have it. Just the way and I mentioned this in the Ted Talk. No one is cancer. They have cancer. But yet it's so common. Like I say this and then like in the same conversation I will hear someone stuck with the language and it's not their fault it's because it's so deeply embedded this mm-hmm. idea that to have a mental health condition is often to be the mental health condition you literally become what what your affliction is mm-hmm. so i think step 1 is no it's not true you are not this thing you have this thing and you have to deal with it those are those are very different i think that's the first part of the story that we tell ourselves The second part of the story that's important is like, you're no different than any other human that has ever lived or is alive, which is to say, we all face mental health challenges in our life, even if we don't deal with something chronic. So there's no such thing as like a lifelong clean bill of mental health. (laughs) And the reason for that is there are things that happen in everyone's life, loss of a loved one, breakup, financial stress, a new job, a move, a family member having a mental health crisis, a family member having a physical health challenge you yourself having a physical health challenge no one is immune from these life experiences that at some point create an acute mental health challenge or crisis and so if we widen our aperture and say i am now just i just now belong to the broader human story where everyone has struggled or suffered from a mental health standpoint at some point i'm no i'm not different i just have this this is my it doesn't mean that it's not harder for people. I think if you have a chronic condition, schizophrenia or bipolar, yeah, that's probably harder than dealing with bereavement for six weeks if we take stock over their lifetime. There is a difference between different kinds of physical ailments, right? It's one thing to battle through pancreatic cancer, and it's another thing to have a six-week bout of pneumonia. So it, There are gradations that I want to acknowledge, but we all belong to this story the same way that we all die. We all belong to it. And so if you can, if you're dealing with something, if you're listening to this, or you're watching it and you're thinking, this makes me different than ever other people. And this makes me bad or broken. And I literally am this thing change your story. Cause none of those things are true. All struggle. You are not your condition and it's not your fault. And so with that frame, Maybe that new story enables you to say, oh yeah, of course I'm going to go get help for this thing. The same way that I would take Tylenol for a headache and not ignore it. Or the same way that I would, I don't know, have a fill in the blank physical illness and go deal with that. Of course I'm going to deal with this, but we need to have those conversations with ourselves first.
0: I think it's beautiful. in the way that the image that came to my mind as you were sharing that, Andy, was a beautiful diamond. Like a diamond has all these facets. It's still a diamond, or, but it has all of the different ways. You might look at it one way and see something totally different. And so too, are we as members of humanity, as members of this human race at this time, we are all part of the same fabric of humanity. And I think that the danger comes in and the danger that has been purported and cultivated, unfortunately, for the last several millennia, has been this idea of separation, that there's been this separation consciousness, you versus me. One of my dear friends, Don Hoffman, who we've had on the show, wrote the book, The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. And he has told me times that evolution by natural selection, even we were just this new episode, Don and Deepak and I did, is coming out soon. We were talking about how Evolution by natural selection, special relativity, all of the things Newtonian physics are not fundamental to reality. And yet we've acted as though they are. And so we've built entire ecosystems, education systems, medical systems around this idea of competition rather than cooperation. And I think what I'm hearing yeah. you support, Andy, is an idea of coming back to that cooperative cooperative. Perspective of how do we see ourselves as part of a whole rather than a separate mm. piece of the whole? Which I know for me, it's you put it so beautifully in it. It hit my heart. Those are the times where I wanted to kill myself, is feeling mm. I was I was not part of anything. Like nobody. When I would get into an, a disagreement with my ex husband, and he'd say, "You aren't there with me. You can't feel mm. what I feel." And now my current husband is neurodiverse, so he appreciates it a bit more. But sometimes you're like, it can't be normal, whatever normal is. And what if there is no normal? What if we're all on the spectrum in some way or another and just having our own unique human experience?
1: I love, I don't know, some people can't use the word crazy or whatever, but I guess I, I feel like I can. Like, I, There's a lot of people in my life that I feel like are way crazier than me and I have bipolar 1. And they, like, won't see a therapist. It's, and I think that the frame, we have to change the frame, right? Like, you see, your husband is neurodiverse. I, I, we all are, I think, by definition. And yeah, maybe there's some categories that are easier to call out. And I think we're getting there. I'm optimistic. I feel like we're at this moment in time where, you know, feel the sand shifting. The zeitgeist is changing. It just is. The conversations are happening. It's percolating. It's so exciting. It reminds me of like the freedom of marriage moment where we went from six states to 15 states and all of a sudden it was 35 states and then it was like federal law. And there's been like these kind of charts of like civil rights, civil rights movements and how long it took civil rights for black Americans, women's suffrage kind of look at it and the timelines are accelerating on these things in ways that might even be like good, like social media and things like that might even be good. And there's some good sides to it. And I think I there's some bad sides to it for sure. But we're not here to talk about that. I feel like this is accelerating. Even this Mental Health Awareness Month from last year's, it feels different. It feels like destigmatization is like an almost an old th- concept now. So, yeah, of course we got to do that. How do we do it now? It's not the debate about it and when i went through the ted talk chris anderson was really clear yeah i don't want to do a ted talk about destigmatization that's not on the frontier of human thought let's do a conversation about how we lionize people who have clearly have stuff going on from a neurodiverse neuro, neurodiversity standpoint who are building the future and how do we pu- pull apart lionizing those individuals from them like dealing with their dealing with their shit right so we're making progress, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that the greatest thing I was in a plant medicine ceremony. So I'm not shy about this. I share with everybody whether it's been my depression, suicide, bulimia, anything I've gone through, good or bad, or everything in between. I always am frank with people and share about it. And I remember the first plant medicine ceremony I ever did with ayahuasca a few years ago. I heard a message and it really has become my mantra, Andy. And this is it it's that everyone, Is doing the best that they can in every moment. And that includes you. And so when I find myself getting activated or annoyed or frustrated with somebody else, I remind myself they're doing the best they can in this moment. And my husband will even say, honey, do you think they're doing the best they can? I'm like, yeah. (laughs) And then also, the important thing though is most importantly to show that compassion to ourselves. I don't think as a society, as human beings, that we're going to be able to grow at this rate that you're talking about, Andy, until we can first cultivate that compassion for ourselves. That when you were in that moment, when you were having that breakdown with your wife and her mother, and it was heart-wrenching, you were doing the best you could in that moment because that's what you did. Same thing with my sister. When she had her moment, we're all doing the best we can. And if we can just extend that little extra inch of compassion towards ourselves first and then towards others then i think it's from that place that we're going to be able to see the transformation that we want to see in the world and in mental health
1: i love that frame i've wrestled i've wrestled with it i i want to believe that everyone is doing their best i have a friend that thinks that way and i, I subscribed to it for a while and hearing you say it makes me want to resubscribe i struggle with it in terms of being like is it a way to is it like an excuse <laughs> this morning i had a this is going to be the most obnoxious example obnoxious example i had a tennis lesson at 8 and i knew i i was going to pay for it no matter what and i knew my coach was there and i just felt like tired it's been a long week and this and that and so i canceled but did i do my best you did my best oh. probably would have been to get up 20 minutes earlier and have a coffee and i would have made it but I'd struggle to reconcile this idea that feels really good retrospectively, but that looking forward feels potentially like an excuse to not do my best. So anyway, we that's a whole separate deep dive I'm at some point.
0: i show just on that. The idea is we're either expanding or contracting. In that moment where you contracting, yes, you were contracting, doesn't mean that you still weren't doing your best. Who knows? You have a two-and-a-half-year-old. You have a wife. You have a life for whatever reason, circumstances, yeah. end, that in that particular moment, in that second. But
1: our nanny was with him. Our <laughs> nanny was with him. I literally have no, I'd slept seven hours. Anyway. We're
0: playing. You know what event? I No, I know.
1: Stuff. It's like, I should have gone to fucking play tennis. Grow up. Anyway. <laughs> you buddy.
0: Though, can you forgive yourself? That's the thing is that's where we get so hard on ourselves being neurodivert. That's where I spent decades beating myself up and self-criticizing. Yeah. You could have done better. You're a bad. I know. No, your friend wouldn't tell you that. Your best friend, your wife, Manuela, would not say yeah. you're a bad person, Andy. Because well, of- but How
1: do we reconcile it then against human achievement? Because I feel like that tough inner critic, while maybe not good for my soul, has been good for my accomplishments. And so then what? At would what it be cost? better to have been?
0: At what? No, cost that's that's the thing. But that's, I think the that's the point. The-
1: that's where I'm going to argue. I think that's the, the question. question. No, I think that's where we are. Like that's that's what you and I are talking about. That's what I was trying to raise on stage at TED, at what cost, at what price innovation, at what cost to ourselves, to others, to society at large. These questions are difficult. They're good though. Or maybe they're not difficult I and mean, we're just catching up to the easy, well, not the easy answers, but.
0: Tell me, Andy, what is your closing thought? If somebody is watching today, listening today or in the future, whenever they're listening to it or watching it, What is a piece of wisdom that you would love to share that maybe we didn't get a chance to touch on today?
1: I don't know if I'm dating myself or that's good or bad, but when I was in college, I watched Good Will Hunting six or seven times and it was after I'd been diagnosed, but I was in denial at the time. I wasn't like dealing with this concept of having bipolar. I was dealing with not thinking about the idea that I am bipolar meaning the identity conversation that we talked about earlier was leading me to, I didn't want to take that on. I didn't want to be this thing. And yet still that scene in the movie Goodwill Hunting where Robin Williams, who of course later, you know, later died by suicide and dealt with depression, I think was speaking from a deeply personal place with this scene on the bench where he tells the Matt Damon character or wherever the scene is, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he keeps repeating it. And then Matt Damon starts to break down. And at some point, he's like, don't with or something like that with his British accent. And I feel like, yeah, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Not your fault. And I think we've got to tell ourselves that. We've got, to un, we've got to untell ourselves things that we maybe have imputed societally. And we've got to tell each other that story, too.
0: Yeah. It goes back to what we were just speaking about is that you are doing the best that you can. I am doing the best that I can. And if we can all extend a little grace for that to everybody, the world would be a happier place. Really would. So, I love it. <laughs> where can people find you? People, the TED talk is obviously everywhere, By the time people listen and watch this, it'll probably be at over a million views. <laughs> where can people find the TED talk, the book information on what you're doing?
1: Yeah, I guess I've nerded out. I've got a website, andydunn.com. There's a bit there. The TED Talk's right there. There's a a bunch of stuff about the book. Now we're here on your podcast and I've done a bunch of those. So just happy to be here and thanks for having me.
0: Thank you, Andy. From the moment I read about your book, I literally voraciously read it, covered it. Like I think I finished your book in less than 24 hours. Then I went back and re-listened to it. And my sister... My sister, Andy, when I called her after I read the book, my sister who's bipolar, who has struggled, let's say, has struggled with bipolar schizophrenia. And I called her and I shared with her about this amazing book from this man I had just read. And she said, thank you, because I feel like you have a little window into what it's like to be in my life and in my pain. And she said, thank that man, please, for writing that book so that you and I could grow closer. So, Yeah,
1: I'm sending love to her and to you. And let's just keep doing our best.
0: Yes, thank you so much. So again, Andy Dunn, the author of the best-selling book Burn Rate, here with us today on regarding consciousness. I am Jennifer K Hill, CEO of Ohm.app, and it's always a pleasure to have you here with us. We welcome your feedback, your comments. For those of you who want to get the episodes before they come out on normal podcast channels, you can always find them at Jennifer K Hill on YouTube where they all air before they go live on the podcast channel. So thank you so much and deep gratitude. And if you need help Please know it's out there. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of Regarding Consciousness with Jennifer K. Hill. We would love it if you would take a moment and write a review for us or rate us on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And if you'd like to stay in touch and find out about upcoming events with some of the amazing guests we've had on the show, like Deepak Chopra and other world thought leaders, feel free to join my email list at metabizics.com. Again, that's metabizics.com. And you can go ahead and join our email list there. Thanks so much. And we look forward to having you join us next week.